We made it, everyone. Welcome to Questions You Thought You Could Never Ask in Church. We apologize for the delay getting on the air here today. Kent Jones, who normally produces for us, has left us the keys to the studio and said, figure it out, guys. So fire sale down here at 21.6 The Net, right? He gave great instructions. (laughs) They were just technical difficulties. Mad props to Andrew over here, who has been fighting the machine. right? Rage against the machine, Andrew. Yes. Rage against the machine. That's my life. That's my whole job. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Dave Gadini here in the studio with Steve Wells and Andrew Metcalf. This is the podcast where we invite you to text the questions that you might have about God and Christianity, about Jesus and the Bible, about different kinds of religions and different kinds of belief systems and how it all kind of adds up and how it translates into your spiritual life, how it translates into your personal life. Maybe it's questions you have. Maybe it's questions you're coming across that people are challenging you with. Maybe it's questions that you've heard and you don't really know how to make sense of. Maybe there are questions that have long since laid dormant and something is resurrecting them. And maybe there are things that are just sparking out of your walk with God, whatever they might be. You know, we don't care. Um, they're welcome here. We'd love you to text them in to 815-314-0363. I'll give you that one more time. 815-314-0363. If you're joining us on Facebook, welcome here at 216 The Net or through Fellowship of Faith. You can visit us at fellowshipoffaith.org as well. And we have got quite the inbox, I think, chalked up here today. Um, hearing yeah. about Steve's busy weekend, yeah. watching Andrew just kind of like, you know, do his thing. Do and, my uh, thing. What I did. And, and the questions are kind of like humming under the surface right now. I kind of took a sneak peek of what oh, we got. Did. Yeah, I did this. I did today. We were sitting here, you know, 10 minutes before. So I pulled up the, uh, the inbox and uh, going, okay, what's getting dropped That's on us? That's what you were doing over there. I just thought you were ignoring my stories just, I was yeah. talking about. Yeah, right. Well, I was doing that too, Steve. You know, <laughs> like, I'm gonna act like I'm busy. Maybe he'll show up. Kinda, yeah. Uh-huh. Keep <laughs> nodding, you know. <laughs> Land the plane. So rumor has it you got some house guests coming in and you're sleeping in your tree house, huh? Yep, I'm gonna sleep in the tree house. With where, cats. With the cats that are no longer there, just yeah. a mess. Yeah. Probably. And uh, yeah, so we've got Terry and Kayla Kino coming, which they're part of our house church in Nebraska, officially members of FOF. Yeah, but we're running a house church out of their uh, their basement yeah. in Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. I love this couple. They're in their early 20s, maybe mid-20s, mm-hmm. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Two small kids and uh, in an area where there wasn't really the, the right church to kind of connect with and really took seriously this idea where two or three gather in Jesus' name. And uh, you know, I hear a lot of people use that kind of language and they never do anything yeah. about it. Yeah. What I love about this couple is they did something about it. They just called some friends. They called some family. And they meet every Sunday. They've been, I think, solid 18 months in the groove at this point, if yep. I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, doing church every single week, figuring it out, what it means to root yourself in God's word, worshiping, praying, you know, enjoying yeah, he, sacraments together. Yeah, It's cool stuff. He did an internship with me a couple times okay. at our old church. And um, one of the things where you just you just nailed it, that he would say <clears throat> where there would be an issue at hand, you know, a mm-hmm. problem would arise possibly or a conflict. Or yeah, whatever. whatever it might be. Yeah, And he would always say, so what are you going to do about it? Mm. I'm like, well, wait a minute. No, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. You're the intern. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. I'm going to put you on it and you're going to handle it and then yeah. you're going to learn from it. Yeah, so right, right. That's what we're going to so I, I know we got an intern with us right now that you two are both kind of doing a joint intern with Garrett, uh, Garrett Floden. So shout out to him if he's listening. Is that kind of the same thing? It's like, Garrett, you know, what are you going to do about it? Uh, or not, not quite there maybe, yet. That's like month three. Maybe. You know, I don't know because like in Nebraska, I had an office. Yeah. You know, and so there would be a time where, you know, it's just you're hanging out with me. You're, you're, you're imitating your 
you could do life in a certain way, yeah. professional life mm-hmm. together. Yeah. yeah. And then we'd come home for lunch and have some uh, nachos and some hot dogs and that sounds watch the news like the worst lunch I've ever heard. I just got to tell you, watch too? the news. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's yeah. Why. This is just, no, this no. is like the internship from hell. This you know? is great because yeah. it's life. You got, you got to teach them the ways of the world. Nachos. So I credit hot dogs I credit in daytime Dar- news. <laughs> Derry is who he is because of me. <laughs> uh, good or bad. You decide good matter. or bad. Let us know if you've met Terry. Yeah. What you think? Yeah. We'll see on Sunday. You may, Heckle them and boo them out. <laughs> nah, I love it. I love it. Good stuff. Well, Andrew, we're running a little bit behind the clock here today. Why don't we jump into some questions and, yeah, and get this moving? We've got a few novels here. So all right. I like <laughs> the novels. This could be interesting. We'll all start right. at the top. Uh, what's all this talk about the air quotes right hand of God? When Jesus ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. <laughs> Is this some kind of propaganda against left-handed <laughs> yeah, I people? I saw this come up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know if this is serious or not. <laughs> Wouldn't God be ambidextrous and equally skilled and mighty with the left hand? Seriously, though, is this just the Bible's <laughs> the Bible writer's use of an analogy that makes sense to the readers of that day? Uh, as the right hand was often the dominant hand and something that symbolized strength and prominence. Yeah, I mean, y- y- you got it. Thanks for asking. I love this question. Kind of fun, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, it's, and, and, and sometimes it's even worse. Have you ever seen renditions of like the Apostles' Creed or like the Nicene Creed? where they don't say he sat at the right hand of God, but that he sat on the right hand of God, oh, yeah. which is like oh. even a weirder image, yeah. you know, if you will. I'm pretty sure like a cathedral painting, like the, I don't, which one is it where David is reaching out to God or God is reaching out Oh, it's to Adam God. and God, like the finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah the finger thing, you know, Sistine but Chapel. I'm, I'm yeah, just right, picturing right. a little tiny person on the end of the finger. <laughs> <laughs> that's even weird yeah yeah it just keeps kind of spiraling down doesn't it yeah total propaganda against left-handed people we all know left-handed mm-hmm. people are of the devil from birth i mean it's just inherent Absolutely. um it's really how you know if you're of the devil um i think john chapter 8 talks about that where jesus is getting into a debate with you know who whose children have gotten whose children of the devil and it probably does say left-handed there I mean, doesn't it i i mean you're the Greek expert. So, so yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, wild new translations right before your eyes here today. Don't trust that one. No, it's totally an analogy to make sense to the people of the day. Um, you, you know, the right hand has historically been always, uh, you, you know, symbolic. We even talk about it that way today. You, you know, you're my right-hand man. Right. People will say this day is, you are the one I rely on. You are the one that I invest my, my trust and confidence in. You are the one that I put my authority in. All that kind of stuff. That's what it's communicating. Don't take the language too literally. Mm-hmm. And was it was that a thing in? I feel like I heard about it in Catholic schools, probably in the sixties, seventies, where they would force left-handed people to write with their right hands. I don't think it was just the Catholic schools. I mean, that's I think what I always kind heard of a, like some nun making yeah, write with right. right hand or something <laughs> like. No, no, but I think that was even true, and uh, I don't want to claim to be an expert on this, but I've kind of heard these stories through all different kinds of education systems where we were going to kind of beat the right, beat the left-handedness out of you, and um, putting any theological ridiculousness that people would attach to it. Um, part of me, though, does wonder how much this it was a practical. I mean, there was a day and age when you didn't have left-handed scissors. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's crazy that that had to become a novel invention. But just trying to get people to function mm. in the world today. Um, you know, Steve, I think of you, you know, you've mentioned before that you're dyslexic. And probably the same kind of half-baked approaches people used to have to people with dyslexia or maybe another learning disability, where we're just gonna kind of force it into you. Yeah. As luck. opposed to meeting you where you're at mm-hmm. and what your unique 
biological makeup happens to be. Yeah. Right. Well, I will say this Sunday was, um, an eye opening, like blew my mind experience. And here's why. So these, right. You're, you're used to seeing me with these. These yeah. are my readers. Yeah. Well, I got new contacts that are a multifocal hey. and they are a godsend <laughs> because I can see my stand now. And so before <laughs> it was guessing before it was like, Oh my gosh, this is blurry. I don't, I think I know what that just, word just is. Just make it up. But then right? combine that with dyslexia. And it's like, <laughs> you know, the Holy spirit's working. If yeah. I'm able to get up there on Sunday. Yeah, right, but now right. it's like, well, I don't have to rely so much on the Holy Spirit. So now <laughs> there's no excuses. Right. Well, yeah. And I still mess some things. <laughs> they need a they need a contact that like counteracts the dyslexia. Right. Which I've heard there's In like various time. fonts and things that they're kind yeah. of working on that'll yeah. help with that. <laughs> Spacing. I'm no scientist. Issue. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho. Yep. Well, yeah. Think- so do we? Do we land the plane on that one? It, it, it's it's a symbol, a metaphor to describe the fact that God the Father has put all His authority, confidence, and trust in His Son Jesus Christ. Yeah. Much the same way a king or queen, right, while they're still living, can pass the throne down to their next of kin, right? So, so the Elizabeth situation isn't going to work like we had recently. That's a death-based transition of power, right? But there has been throughout history, well, even in the Catholic Church, the prior Pope, Pope, right, Benedict XVI, passing it over to who's now Francis. Okay. So on an island of only left-handed people, could you have a right-handed man? Hmm. Hmm. The deep questions of life. A right-handed man, like Dave was talking about, you might go to. Are are there any males in this island, or is it all female left-handers? Um, right. Because that would add another like complication to this, you know. Mm, maybe. Yeah, think about that one. Huh? I thought you said you're trying to remember a real situation. Yeah, maybe like, did this happen? I don't know. Back to you? on I don't uh, know. the island of. <laughs> I'm trying to remember when our like... navy ship sunk and I had to swim forever. <laughs> you're not left-handed, are you? No. You? No. no. Okay. Yeah, no, I'm my, not either. My brother and my dad are. Okay. That's. that's okay. But I think Paul. It's good that they have that special bond with each other. You know. Right. Yeah. I mean, Paul I, is. I think Paul is actually left-handed, but okay. was forced to be right-handed. Okay. Because he's your your dominant eye also has something to do with whether or not you were supposed to be right or left-handed. Now, my son Ben is right-handed, except when he shoots, mm-hmm. because he is left-eye dominant, and it was something he had to discover actually through like Boy Scout camp. They found this out. Where, I mean, you know, he was a million miles off target, bow or, you know, rifle. And he switched and boom, right in every time. That's how, so, we, that's how we found out. So maybe maybe there is something to that. Yeah. Because we were shooting. Okay. So. Same thing. It's like, I thought he was shooting at me on purpose. Hey, right. And, and he may have been, actually. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, can I just suggest that maybe you don't stand downrange, you know, regardless <laughs> of what I... You're a little left, Paul. <laughs> you can get the apple on my head. I believe yeah. in you. Right you past can my ear. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, another question that I think is actually serious. No, no ingest here. Uh, do you believe in the reformed or non-reformed position on the atonement? Oh, great question. Thanks for submitting it. And my answer is yes, I do. Um, to both. And let me do a little unpacking of this because I think uh, there's some some things that it's assuming. 
and there's some implication of language. So let's talk about the word atonement, maybe just to get started. It's a churchy word that I can't say it never gets used in other contexts anymore, but you don't really hear it too much. And uh, basically, the concept of atonement is how you make a wrong situation right. Um, How do you make up for something or correct something that's gone off the rails? Um, I've heard it put this way before, and it's kind of like one of these cheesy Christian catchphrases. I don't know who coined it originally, but you can hear like at one mint in it. So how do you get like one with God again? which implies that we're not at one, that there's a wedge between us or some kind of fissure or break, Mm -hmm. if you will. So this is what atonement is about. It can be used in any number of contexts, not only with God, but, you know, I think most people at some point in their life have hurt someone or betrayed someone or let someone down or have done something that they've regret towards someone and they want to make it right in some way. It kind of helps ease the conscience and it helps rectify or, or fix the relationship, right? So, I mean, all of this is an expression of atonement. But in Christian theology, there's the basic idea that the goal or the desire of God and us is to be one again, but there's something that's kind of busting that up. And what's agreed upon in all Christian theology is that Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is what fixes that which is broken or what heals that fissure or brings the two back to one. What is debated is how Jesus' death on the cross actually does that. And this is where theories of atonement start spilling out. And there's actually a lot, and they go deeper than just Reformed or non-Reformed, because not all Reformed people have the same theory of atonement, and not all non-Reformed people have the same theory of atonement. Maybe a clarification there, too. When people talk about the Reformed movement with a capital R, they are referring to a very specific theological strain within Protestant Christianity that basically is generated by John Kelvin and the offshoots of him, all right? But Methodism, which is, which does trace its family tree to John Kelvin, though they are not Calvinists, still would kind of be considered in a broad scope Reformed theology, if you will. So let's do a little assumption work because this would be easier to have a conversation with with who's ever asking in person to go, what do you mean actually by Reformed theology? Well, typically what is meant by Reformed theology is something that is called penal substitution. All right? You hear the word substitute, we know what that means. We hear the word penal, you can't say that and not giggle a little bit, but what it's referring to is penalty, right? That there, there is some kind of penalty that has to be paid by humanity. And Jesus is substituting himself in to take that penalty on himself. This is classic Reformation theology, not just Kelvin, but Luther as well. Mm-hmm. But but Kelvin really ran with it. And it is the like par excellence atonement theory among much Reformed theology. So the question is, do you believe that? Yeah, I do. I think there's scriptural warrant for that, that there is, I think the Bible talks this way, that you can, in one model, look at God as a judge and God in his justice needs to punish sin in order to be just. But out of his love and compassion and pity for humanity, he doesn't want to punish humanity even though they rightfully deserve it. But rather than just 
dismissing it and looking the other way in order to be just, Jesus substitutes himself in willingly to take all the punishment of God that we deserve on himself. This is, I think, a great uh, position on the atonement. It is not without its difficulties, errors, and pushbacks and problems if, if it's taken too far in certain ways. Um, and, and I won't get into that too deeply, but I think it is also limiting to shore up the fence, if you will, around that atonement theory itself and ignore other atonement theories as well that I think corroborate with it, uh, don't contradict it, but also add another piece. Because here's the thing, a lot like suffering, the Bible gives a lot of answers or a lot of explanations and uses a lot of reasons why when it comes to the cross. You're not going to find one answer to why we suffer in the Bible. It's not that simple... uh catchphrase or whatever. Right. You're going to find several. And likewise, when the Bible talks about what Jesus' death on the cross basically accomplished or affected, it talks about it in a number of different ways too, that don't quite all fit into the same model very neatly. Another big theory out there is called the ransom theory. And it's the idea that you are owned or possessed by the devil and a ransom has to be paid to free you from that, shall we say, rightful or legal ownership. Another kind of theory that goes along the lines with it is what's called like the Christus Victor theory, which is like, eh, we don't got to pay the devil off at all or pay any kind of ransom. But somehow through Jesus' death on the cross, evil and death has been destroyed. So it's almost like a final knockout blow, if you will, by his death. Um, you could think of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and it kind of Uh, spends a lot of time flirting with those theories where you have the white witch who has the right to blood, if you will. So Jesus both substitutes or Aslan the lion both substitutes himself in, right? In place of those whose blood is demanded, but it's also really a knockout blow against the white witch because he knew the deeper magic that the witch didn't know. So you see that played out in, in, in fiction like that as well. So there's a lot of theories and that's why I answer it. Yes. But I didn't think that was satisfying with a one-word answer. <laughs> Steve, would it have been satisfying with a one-word answer? I would have been satisfied. You would have been satisfied. Yeah. 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 I would have been satisfied with the one-word answer, but then also explanation on it. So not a one-word answer. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Both end. So contradict what I just said. Okay. Got but it. I, I have a question, I guess, regarding uh, the, the need for atonement, I guess. That I mean, the the sacrificial system, which is often used to describe Jesus' death and resurrection as like mm-hmm. the, the ultimate sacrifice, so we broke out of the Old Testament sacrificial system. God put that in place. Yes. Why? <laughs> like, like, why didn't God, if God can do anything, is this where this is going? If God can do anything, why doesn't he just kind of like it, yeah, it's, brush it's it off, things, start over, like, do something like that? You, you set up, he set up this, this whole... S- system of sinning, sacrificing for sin, forgiveness, all like, yeah, it's a big why question of like, why did you go, you know what, this is going to be the solution is Jesus is going to come and be the final sacrifice and do all that. It's like, was that necessary for a system that God, that he, you put in place yourself? Like it seems weird. And it does seem weird. And there's a couple of ways I want to approach this. The, the simple and less satisfying way, and then to Steve's delight, the longer way, no, all right? Just no. <laughs> God is faithful to his word. 
that's almost a starting block that we have to begin from. So if God says something, he is going to do it or carry it through. So God has made certain pronouncements. For example, in relation to sin, you will die, right? In relation to sin, the creation will be cursed. Now you can ask why God said that. And those are questions that I fundamentally don't think can be answered. Right, like I mean, who who has known the mind of God? Why fundamentally did He choose to say that? Well, I, I can't really get into that level of it, but He did say it. So much of this is in response to that which God has chosen to do of His own volition and free will. However, it should be said that there are some maybe philosophical inquiries or or answers that we can bring to it, or at least like modes of thinking to help to help it satisfy a little bit better than just, well, God said it, so he's got to do it. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's and, a man uh, of his word. No one can say it. When, when it comes to knowing God, we know him best by analogy. And it is kind of amazing that if you see how God reveals himself, he always reveals himself by image, picture, analogy, metaphor. God is like a king. God is like a father. God is like a shepherd. And, and, and it goes beyond just what God is like. But then how does God like, orchestrate and operate the world? Well, it's like a court of law. It's like a family. It's like an economy. It's like a fill in the blank. And the reason he does this is because I think God is so unknowable at some level that what God does is he condescends to our limitation and speaks our language, speaks through the ways that we kind of apprehend reality and kind of works with us with how things make sense to us. It's like trying to explain a either difficult or even just normal term or word to a kid. You like got it. They have limited vocabulary. They have all these things. It's like, yeah, how is God going to take, you know, his reasoning and his everything and sum it down into something that we can understand? And, and literally John Calvin himself <laughs> used that kind of language. What you just said, Andrew, where he said that God talks to humanity the way that he says a nursemaid, but that would really be like, you know, a, a babysitter or caregiver speaks to a four-year-old child with a lisp. Mm -hmm. You know, God's got to talk baby talk to yeah. us for us to get it. We're just big babies, right? So within that, we, we have an innate sense of what's good and right. And we know uh, kind of innately what just injustice looks like, right? And so we kind of have a sense, don't we, that if someone like defrauds someone or does something horrible to someone or destroys some, like, like someone destroys your property, right? Them just kind of going, oh, I'm sorry, doesn't really cut it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, and if there was a court of law that was meant to kind of oversee the proper functioning of like the community that you live in, if a judge was to look at someone who, you know, destroyed your home or wrecked your car or smashed into you and said, ah, we're just going to let it go. We don't want them to have to fix your car. That there's something fundamentally not right about that, right? So this is true of all humanity. And so one of the key ways that the Bible describes God and talks about God is as a judge who is going to bring justice ultimately to the world, right? But it's problematic when the judge needs to try, if you will, the very people he loves and condemn them. Well, and he's almost the judge and the prosecutor. 
in that way. And in an ancient world, You're that is how it would be set up. The king would just make a judgment, right? Yeah. You would plead your case before the king. The king would decide. There was a lot less what we would call due process Not a jury of than peers. <laughs> we have today. But I will point this out on the other hand. If you have a perfectly just king, give me that any day over the bureaucratic mess of what we have had to set up because of human corruption and limitation in democratic world today. Yeah. Right? So these are the models that the Bible uses, but the model will, the Bible will also use models like um, being ransomed, you know, whether it's like a kidnapping or a slavery situation, it'll talk about God being one who does that. It'll talk about like a father who's trying to rescue his children. It'll talk about God like a warrior who's fighting against evil and hostile forces that are seeking to overthrow you. He uses all these different kinds of models. And fundamentally, they all come to the cross as the linchpin. And so all of these atonement theories flow out of these greater biblical models for trying to understand how God is going about fixing the plight and problem of sin and evil in the world. That, that it, it's a huge canopy of thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess um, even in the situation of God and Jesus, God is the judge, the prosecutor and the def defense. <laughs> kind yes. of in that way, he's yes. filling all of those roles because Jesus, if you will, is defending. I mean, he's living his perfect life going, Hey, yeah, I don't have any flaws. You, this is just, is nothing for me. And it's but why the divinity of Christ is so important in, in this, this theory of atonement, because one of the, one of the accusations that's sometimes been made against penal substitution is that God is a cosmic child abuser. Like, like who would ever treat their son that way? But if the son is not, shall we say a hapless victim, but willingly doing it for himself. And more importantly, if the son is also God or divine, thereby taking it upon himself, right? It becomes a self-inflicted judgment blow rather than like, I'm taking the bullet, not pushing my kid in front of the gun. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So. I have so many. <laughs> well, and, 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 and here's the thing. At some point, every metaphor and analogy breaks down mm -hmm. because you can oh, always yeah. push it to certain logical conclusions. But you're just where, not going to get well, not only will not get it, but it'll lead you to wrong ideas mm -hmm. that, that the metaphor or analogy was never meant to answer yeah. or speak into. So you always got to be careful with your models and how far you logically push it. And that's where the other models and the rest of the Bible serves as correctives to incorrect conclusions from the limited data of one model. Well, that's why there's so many different analogies and metaphors. That you God got uses it. And that's why you got to kind of maintain them all. None of them are going to be the, the ultimate like full thing because we can't right. understand that. And I think the difficulty that happens for Christians and in Christian circles is, you know, we know about God fundamentally from what people have told us be it going to church or picking up from mom and dad or maybe someone influential in our life, we might do a little bit of reading, right? Um, we, we read the Bible, but it, let's face it, it's a big complex book and we kind of like gravitate to a few favorite passages. So when someone kind of like synthesizes something or simplifies something, we latch onto it because that's how we think. We need those anchor points. But we often latch onto one and then construct everything around it, right? And 
hey, no harm, no, no, no blood, no foul in that. But we just have to kind of be careful. It's the same problem of taking one verse out of the Bible and constructing a complete theology of God around it. There's truth in it, but you don't have countervailing truths to keep it from going haywire or off the rails, you know, through the way that you think it through. And I don't think there's any issue or or problem that God would see with us sitting here talking and thinking through. Oh, and, no, and, none at all. But at the same time, just like, you know, in, in your message, I don't know if it was this past Sunday or the Sunday before that, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so obviously, if his thoughts are not our thoughts, his comprehension is not our comprehension. His everything is really not ours either. It's like he's so far past where we're at right now that it's just like, <clears throat> I I. Sure. Would I love to understand? Yeah, I would. I think everybody would. Yeah. That's the meaning of why we're here, mm-hmm. right? But we never will fully completely understand. And that's what I think is so cool about the cross is because what is absolute mm-hmm. among every Christian of every variety is that the cross has accomplished this atonement. We don't have to figure out the why. No. The why is talked about in the Bible, suggested theologians have structured things and have done a lot of good in the process. But figuring out the right atonement theory is not what saves you. Jesus and his death on the cross is what saves you. And we can put our faith in that, even like you said, Steve, you know, to piggyback on it, they haven't figured out all the ins and outs as to how that actually works in every detail and the whys and the implications. Right. Yeah. Some of those details are going to be incomprehensible by us at some level so as much as you can try to figure them out we're always going to be shoehorning it into our understanding and our Mm -hmm. logic and reasoning which falls apart there's always more god on the horizon so every time you take four steps you've learned more but then you see that there's more to be seen right yeah and some people are can comprehend more than others yeah on different subjects you got it so it's like I, I can't imagine that God would be like, well, if you didn't comprehend it, you didn't understand it. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Like you die and you're standing there at like the gates of heaven and you know, the old St. Peter joke is standing there and he's like, you know, it's not like, why should I let you into heaven? He goes, well, give me the seven prevailing theories of atonement. And you, well. But I only knew five. <laughs> a little confirmation quiz. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, you only got right. 20 out of 25. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Not, 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 not this enough. round. Yeah. There's a couple of comments here I'm interested in. Uh, Tina says, Rob Bell's sermon, The Gospel of Salsa. I don't know what that means. I haven't heard that sermon, but I'm curious now. You know, very early on in his professional career, I'm going to say, you know, Mars Hill started, I want to say, in 1999. Mars Hill in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Rob Bell's not there anymore. Um, Whether it was when he was still with Ed Young, um, interning, or right early on in Mars Hill, it doesn't matter. About 20 years ago, he gave a sermon. Probably gave it multiple times, but I know he gave it once at Willow Creek to their... uh, their student ministry, whose name is escape, is it Elevate? I, it doesn't matter. Um, it's escaping me right now. But uh, he called it the gospel according to salsa. And it was the idea that out of death comes life. And we see this in the natural world. And here's the analogy. Do you guys like salsa? I mean, straight up, do you like it? I love salsa. Yes. Okay. And I, I remember this line. He said, my wife makes the best salsa. And if you disagree, I will arm wrestle you for it. And I thought that was kind of like the worst way to settle it, but it stuck in my mind. But he said, think about it, how everything you eat is a death to life process. The salsa that you have is you're picking vibrant fruit from these plants that are alive, and then you mutilate them 
You chop them up. You dice them. You design machines to do it for you and make it more efficient, food processors and things like that, right? And he's kind of going through it, but going how out of that it's created something beautiful, it's created something savory, it's created something sustaining, it creates something that actually gives life. And Jesus will talk about this. If a kernel of wheat doesn't fall to the ground and die, how does it sprout to make a crop, right? Referring to his own death and life. The same idea. That's what that comment, I'm pretty positive, is getting it. And Rob, if you are listening, love you, brother, but my wife salsa will beat your wife salsa any day, hands down. And we will arm wrestle you on this show if you want to take us up on it, all right? Rob, please reach out because that would be a beautiful moment for me. I got to tell you. I would love to. I would love to arm wrestle Rob Bell on this show, or on the Robcast. Rob, Maybe. if you want to have us on the Robcast, I would come and arm wrestle you on your show as Is well. Is that really a thing? The Robcast. Yeah, that's his yeah. podcast. It's the Robcast, which you got to say it's, it, it, mm. it's pretty good. That's that's well named. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I'm digging it, man. I'm digging it. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's there. It's, it's there. Okay. It's central. Yeah. The Robcast. Uh, Kelly also says, uh, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is always mediating for us up in heaven to God? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Interceding. Yeah. Interceding is the fancer. Uh, We should use the word intercede. That would be the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit as well, you know, is interceding with us with words, with groans that words cannot express. Mm -hmm. But you also see Hebrews talk about how Jesus at the right hand of God is interceding for us. And that's actually what it means when we call Jesus a, a priest or a great high priest. All a priest is is a middleman. Um, he's, he's the go-between that you have to use. That's what a priest does, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, all good. Hey, let me give a, a, a station break here. We started a little late, so we're going to do this a little late. But you are listening to 21.6 The Net. This is the podcast, Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. We go live every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Central Time, at least theoretically when all the tech is working the way it's supposed to. Whatever Ken's here. But hey, here's the good news. If you've missed past episodes, pick us up on your favorite podcast provider. You can go to fellowshipoffaith.org, connect to our FOF Plus page, and catch the podcast right there. Or like I said, you can go through Apple or Spotify or whatever podcast provider you're using. Just search questions you never thought you could ask in church. Plenty of past episodes there. Maybe we've gotten to some of the things that you're thinking about already. But if we haven't, text your questions in. We'd love to get them. You can text them in 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If we can't get them live on the show, we definitely get them in the inbox and try to get to them as soon as we can. 815-314-0363. Again, that's 815-314-0363. All right, Andrew. What's in the pocket? So we got a novel here. Okay, I want the novel. Let's Another do it. One. Do you want Let's the whole thing? Or or uh, there's a, a portion of this that I think is the actual question that they're trying to get to. I, I don't know. I haven't read it. So is the setup necessary? J- just start. Let's see where oh, it takes okay. us. Okay. Uh, okay. My brain Steve has likes been, long. I do. Steve likes long. My brain has been nagging me all morning on my walk as I've been contemplating John's use of words of the word signs instead of miracles. So just using what I know is that a miracle is a sign and that and the seven that are focused on in John's book would be the water to wine. There's a list of a bunch of them. Healing the official son, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, on and on. There's yeah. seven signs in John. Most people will identify. Yeah. So Gospel no, of John. Knowing what I've learned from hermeneutics, I looked Which up, means the art and science of biblical interpretation or any interpretation. Yeah. Uh, I looked up the Greek word and it means Simeon. 
I'm guessing that's seems to be how that would be pronounced, um, which is a token of something known or an indication of intervention by transcendent power, <laughs> which I almost need a definition for the definition, but uh, which makes sense, right? Like a miraculous sign. Okay. There's a lot here. Yeah. Okay. I, I can't wait to see where this is going. Why does John say sign and the other gospels say miracle? Okay. That's, that, the that's what it's that's, coming That's down the to. main question, what they're coming down to. All right. To. So all four gospels record, and I'm going to use the word miracle for a moment record these miraculous things that Jesus does, right? I mean, we could list them right here. He, what are some of them? He gives sight to blind people, right? He um, raises dead people. He feeds 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish. He walks on water, right? He heals crippled people. He casts out demons. I mean, we can go on and on with these miracles that John used, that, 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 uh, that Jesus performs, what I think this uh, this person is picking up on, and it's pretty astute, and it's really cool, thank you for asking this, is the Gospel of John never uses the same language for these activities, these supernatural activities, if you will, that Jesus is doing, that the other three Gospels use. Matthew, Mark, and Luke prefer the word powers. Dunamis is the Greek word. And it's where we get our English work derivatively, dynamite, dynamic, things like that. So Jesus does these displays of power, if you will. And that's how they like to label it. Your English translations will often just turn it into the word miracle for you. But John never uses that language. The gospel writer John always uses the word sign. And you said Simeon earlier. I bet what she's picking up on is the Greek word is pronounced semeon. Yeah, all true. right? And semeon is, is a sign. Well, what's a sign? Well, we all know what a sign is. Drive by an intersection. And if there's a red octagon, you're looking at a sign, right? Go to a bathroom. Figure out, is it the one I'm supposed to go into? Look at the sign, right? We're used to signs. What is a sign? A sign is an indicator of something. That it's pointing to some kind of reality. It is a very intentional use of the term by John because John is trying to say that what Jesus is doing is pointing to a new reality. The new creation is here and upon us. And it's mimicking the same language that the Exodus story uses where God refers to his displays of power, like the 10 plagues and stuff, as signs. These are indicators that Yahweh is more powerful than the Egyptian gods, and Yahweh is actually in control of Egypt, and Yahweh is actually the one who has, shall we say, first rights to the people of Israel, not their slave masters. So John is both intentionally mirroring that language and all the implications that come with it, while simultaneously trying to show us that when Jesus is doing these miracles, they're more than just miracles for miracles' sake. We always want to make them ends, right? It's just good in its own right. And at some level it is, but for God, it's actually more than that. They're not only good in their own right, but they're means to an end. It's meant to show you something greater than just the rising of a dead man or the healing of a crippled man or the miraculous feeding of a, of a whole bunch of people. We're supposed to even see something greater about the nature of God and what Jesus is doing in that sign than just the sign itself. And we can go on. I mean, these, there's seven signs in John. It mirrors the seven days of creation. Um, John opens his gospel by showing that Jesus is the creator God. 
right? And spends a lot of time laying that groundwork. So we see Jesus kind of ushering in a new seven day of creation. The signs are kind of mirroring those, those seven days, if you will. And it, it's really cool because it kind of climaxes with his resurrection, which is the eighth day on the first day of the week. And that has implications. So, so John, John likes to communicate at different levels. He loves word plays. He loves puns. He loves double entendres. He loves multiple layers of meaning. In many ways, it's one of the most complex gospels, which is exactly why when someone's new to the Christian faith, we all put the gospel of John in their hand, right? But to quote that classic line from the early church, the scriptures are a stream that any gnat can swim in, but an elephant can also drown in. And I find that so true in the gospel of John. You can approach the gospel of John as a small child with the most basic rudimentary or lack of knowledge about who Jesus is and see this amazing, beautiful picture of the nature of God and who Jesus is and come to faith in him. And you can spend a lifetime studying the gospel of John and still find that the well goes deeper. So that, that, that hopefully will help navigate this path. So do you think that as the last apostle, right? Yeah. <clears throat> do you think he recognized that they were falling short in with their verbiage? Man, you know, it's a question I'd like to ask him. He's like, look, you know? a real professional. Handle this. <laughs> this is where you guys are missing it. This Mark chump, man. This dude <laughs> ran away naked. What kind of fool does that? What? Maybe. I don't know. But were they you reading know? each other's? The fundamental, I think, answer we have right now is a big who knows. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is a lot of a lot of reason that we can say probably mm -hmm. at least John knowing the other three. Mm -hmm. I, I'm giving a simplistic answer. Mark certainly knew Matthew or Matthew certainly knew Mark and Matthew, Mark and Luke at some point were certainly drawing on the same source material. And there's this whole discussion in what they call gospel criticism about the unknown source named Q. All right. Which is German for quell. Not which just all. means source. And it's what they hypothetically name the source. And here's why they say it. Because when you read Mark, there's about a 90% correspondence word to word with Matthew that goes, I mean, you guys are like quoting each other verbatim. So you're obviously drawing from each other mm -hmm. or drawing from some common mm -hmm. pool, yeah. right? But John is way different. So I don't know, Steve, I think you're on to something. I, I think, think John is looking, going, yeah, man. I, I think it's John is, my voice here. Was, the, was the honest student in high school. <laughs> and the other three were like the three on the bus that are all cheating from each other <laughs> and putting it in their, well, their own words, let's say. Yeah. You've never done that, though. No. No. no I was John. I was like John. <laughs> Steve saw that from afar. You yeah. know, he, mm -hmm. he sat in the front row of the bus. John's the one I cheated heard about. about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why uh, they had to change it uh, enough so they knew yeah. they weren't cheating off. <laughs> those, those weren't even their real names. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So, it, yes, there's a difference or an importance to the words, but it's not like one is better or worse than the other. Oh, no, no, no. Don't, never, never pit the Gospels against each other. They're not competitive. No, just even, even using miracle or sign mm. specifically. It's different language that's referring to the same events, mm -hmm. but bringing out a different nuance by it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it, it, it's like if one person, I, I, this is so dumb. This is just off the top of my head, but I'm just, uh, just, just work with me here. Let's, let's, I'm it's, anxious to hear I, I know, right? Oh, you're going to be so disappointed, it's Steve. Blow Steve's mind. Yeah. It, it, it's like, okay. I'm changing it, man. I'm changing it. So my wife, Tina, uh, walks in right now yeah. and Tina and, and, uh, and, and Steve goes, wow, she's hot. Mm. All right. And I look at her and go, wow, she's lovely. Referring to the same thing that we're saying. Would you say that those two words are completely synonymous? No. No. They're corroborating. They're in the same field, if you will, right? But they kind of bring out a different nuance. Yeah. Don't they? So I think that's maybe the best way to kind of think about, you know, and, and, and we can do this with Barbie if you want. If that makes you feel better, Steve. You, well, you know, we I was just going to say, I, you know, I, would, I would swap them. Just, we, we could do it with Andrew. Just to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think you needed to say. We, we, we paused him there. On that no, no, no. You needed <laughs> yeah. to say hot. I needed to say love. Well, see, I did that on purpose because I had to screw with you. Yes. And, and and there's some subtext in this too, okay. because Tina really likes the word lovely. She's come to embrace oh. that word. That that word carries special so probably meaning one of her favorite songs for is her. Stevie Wonder. Isn't she love? You know what? It's a great song. I see a I, 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 I should sing that to her. I think that would, I think that would be a, a beautiful moment. She says that she likes yeah. both terms. Oh, she likes <laughs> like both terms. Hot right. or lovely. All right. Both so see, acceptable. we're going to win either way. <laughs> That's the way I think about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was another, there was a question that came to mind during that. And now I can't remember. It's gone. Andrew. It's oh, gone. In, in talking died about. Died with John. Back. I have two different points about, about John. <laughs> the one is. He seems like a very like uh, intellectual, literary, like that type of person. If we're saying he's using sign to point to this and pointing back to Genesis and like, was he a trained author or poet or like, if we look at like the great works, like literary works of history, like those are the types of things that you're looking for in those. Was John just some schmuck who happened upon these things or was he like trained in I don't know, literary writing. Okay. Here's what we know. <laughs> here's what we know. Because at some point, I, I, sure I don't you know. talked about this probably in your intro sermon. <laughs> we know he was literate. Okay. And that is not as rare as people think in the ancient world, but it is certainly rarer than it is today. We knew that his father was a fisherman, right? And seemed to have employees. And so he was not so much probably in subsistence level survival fishing, but part of a corporation and maybe heir to the throne, if you will. I'm overstating that a little bit, but I think you can speculate it. We also know in Acts 3, or maybe it's Acts chapter 4, that when they're boldly giving testimony of Christ before the Pharisees, they refer to both Peter and John as unschooled fishermen. All right? Now, whether that's just slam and not true, or whether it is true and they're exploiting that remains to be seen. But here's something else I think we have to remember. John is writing at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And so whatever John experienced when he was arguably a 15-year-old kid first following Jesus in those early 30 AD years is far different than the trajectory and growth of a person who becomes a pillar of the church, a leader of a movement, the bishop of an area, the one who's training other leaders, and one who's then spending a lifetime meditating on the scriptures itself in the process. So... Those all have to kind of be correctives. Develop your perspectives and those types of things. What we do know is that, you know, 
he he was a Jew and so Semitic raised. He spoke Greek. It's 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 literate but not considered polished Greek like Luke is, but certainly has a mind that likes to play with double meanings and and sifting out like like allusions from the Old Testament and and you know you see the way he wrote Revelation. You see the wrote. I mean you know the guy's got a brain even if he isn't schooled. Yeah, and and I think it's always important to kind of maintain a distinction between um, intelligence and education. There's a lot of stupid people with a lot of degrees mm-hmm. yeah. and there's a lot of really smart people that have never gone beyond eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So uh, I think we have to kind of take those all as correctives. And he certainly has, seems to have kind of a sharp mind uh, to be able to come up with these kinds of things. Yeah, you know. definitely. So we're getting close to one thirty. Do we want to go a little bit longer since we started later? That, does well, that the stream have, time says 48 minutes. That's what I'm saying. Go past our 130 time oh, I, I, and stay true to the 60 minute. Well, you know, I would say, timer. Andrew, take this the way you want to go because we do not have a live program that's following us. Yeah. So we do have a little bit of freedom here, but we don't need to unnecessarily keep people, you know, drag along. So why don't you pick the questions yeah, we'll that see. you want and let's see where it goes. And if it's like a two minute or a couple two minutes, say, fine. Depends on who's if producing. It's 10 minutes. I, the chair's empty right now, so <laughs> we are in charge. Um, here, let's jump into this one. Do you believe that Christ literally descended into hell as the Apostles' Creed notes, or do you believe it was erroneously added yeah. in a later version because of a misinterpretation of an earlier version of the Creed? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for asking this. There is so much confusion around this, and even the question itself um, – you know, forgive me if I say it this way, but it's revolving some of the misconception that I think you might have in relation to it. So here's the question. Did Christ descend into hell? How would you answer that? I would say yes. Okay. Steve, would you say yes? Mm -hmm. And we hear it in the creedal language all the time. Would you say, and do you assume that the creeds are written in English? No. No. Okay. Hell is an English word. It's Germanic, H-E-L. If you've seen any of like even the recent like MCU Thor movies, they even have a, you know, um, uh, a villain called Hell who's named after the Anglo-Saxon Germanic conception. So what were the terms that Jesus used and what were the terms that the Greeks used And what the Apostles' Creed, written in Greek, says is that he descended into Hades. Now, if I said he descended into Hades, I bet that has a different connotation for you than he descended into hell, right? And we know Hades from Greek mythology, um, or if not, do a quick Google search on it. But that is the language that the Creed chooses to appropriate to give us a model and image of where Jesus went. And Hades does not equate to what many people's modern conception of hell is. You say hell, and people think torture, fire, brimstone, suffering, misery, punishment. Hades is where dead people go. In Greek thought, everyone, except for maybe like a couple of few, maybe like Hercules didn't, you know, he may have like gotten like an Elijah rap where there's a chariot of fire. I don't remember my Greek mythology well enough. But but 99.999% of people, go to Hades. It's, it's, it's the way that Hebrew will use the word Sheol to refer to the realm of the dead 
whether you're good or bad, righteous or wicked, loved by God um, or, or antagonistic towards God, when you die, you go to the grave. You that, go to the place where dead people go. Is it basically just a confirmation that he died? You got it. Mm. It is a confirmation ah. that he died. Uh, it wasn't a fake death. It wasn't half a death. It wasn't like, get the paddles, clear, boom, resurrecting them back from just some heart stoppage for a little while. No, it, what, what the Apostles' Creed is meant, to men, is, is meant to indicate is that Jesus clearly died. He went to the grave. And if you look at how the um, creed is often translated in Reformed branches of Protestant Christianity, it will actually use often words like, he descended to the grave, as opposed to, he descended to hell, their way of kind of getting around it. I should also say this. The first time that that phrase appears in the Apostles' Creed is in the 4th century AD. That doesn't make it wrong, but I just want to pick up on something that the person may have alluded to. But it's perfectly accurate. Jesus did die. It's bringing a corrective in against any misconception that Jesus really wasn't dead. No, Jesus was really dead. Now, we can push it one step further. Is there also scriptural indication that Jesus may have gone to hell in his time of death in the way that we typically think of it as a place of punishment and fire and brimstone and whatnot? And the answer is a maybe to a probably. You can read passages like 1 Peter chapter 3, for example, where it talks about Jesus descending to the, the, the spirits who are in the prison of darkness and whatever. But what no one thinks, and is, it would be outside of the biblical realm, is to think that Jesus had to go to hell to suffer. The final punishment was paid on the cross. Jesus did not have to go to hell to suffer. So if Jesus did go to any fire and brimstone land, the way you have to approach it is as a conquering hero going into the enemy capital and kicking open the gates of hell and claiming it as his, his turf now, going, you've been liberated. Maybe the way that you can think of allied forces going into Berlin, if you will, in World War II, right? Um, there's certainly acceptable speculation that way and maybe some evidence of that. Um, from passages like 1 Peter 3 and maybe some theological implications depending on your atonement theories and things like that. But I think what the creed is fundamentally getting at is not Jesus was dead. And but that's, who, that's what's behind who it. Who would have been liberated? So there are different theories then on that. See, so we got like this, this like tree, mm-hmm. you know, like family tree of branches coming out. Some would say it is nothing more than the conquering hero coming to the enemy capital and raising his flag and going, this is my turf now. Some would say that there is freedom from those who are in captivity and bondage to the devil, both in actuality and on paper in the future, if you will, this is more of like that Christus Victor and Ransom kind of stuff going, no, they're mine now. You no longer possess them. Some, and we're getting smaller on the tree lines here, but I'm just putting some of them out there, would go so far as to even claim some kind of like universality of salvation going no matter what, 
all have been set free from that bondage again. So that's what I was going to ask because Jesus was basically staking a staking a claim on hell and conquering hell and the devil and everything. Then it's like, then when does that switch happen? That oh well, now hell is the absence of God. Like you can't have both of those. Things. And so it depends on how you're going to define your terms, particularly to. And, and this is the point: what did the creedal writers mean by it? Because we can come up with all different kinds of things that that may or may not be true, but what did they mean by it? And I think fundamentally, that's why we have to go back to the idea of he died. And Jesus, by his death, has freed humanity from bondage to death. So we will all be resurrected someday. And we'll be resurrected because Jesus died and rose again. And his descent into hell as a victor would certainly work very cleanly in that motif. Yeah, I would say to me, it's so hard to comprehend someone who died pre-Jesus right? having to, well, one, like if I'm sitting in hell. But again, how are you Hades, defining hell? How are you defining hell? <laughs> and I see Jesus come in and I'm like, wait a second. Like I never got to like participate in this. <laughs> You're like, hold on, I want that haircut. Like, let's go. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, I, I'm I'm shredding goats and burning things, you know, and i and I still don't even know if I'm saved, you know. So, but you guys get Jesus and you still can't decide whether or not you want to you want to believe in him. I mean, after all he did, like that to me is crazy. <laughs> and that is a topic of discussion, I think, that takes us deeper in the woods, maybe. Well, Next I think time it for time full circle, like you said, like yeah. you had all these things and you, you still couldn't believe right. all the, the signs and miracles that John is writing about. And I, I think, I think, I don't know if it was this week or last week in your sermon where, where you, you were using John chapter 20, I think verse 30, 31 of like, all of these things are written so that you can believe it's like mm-hmm. all of these signs, all of these stories, all of these accounts and everything, all of this is to point to the, like sovereignty of God. And that's kind of the end of it. And well, yeah, and Jesus like, is the son of God. You're yeah. choosing yeah. not to see. You're choosing not to believe. You're choosing not to have faith. And, and I would just say this too. We got to remember that people do not go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. Hmm. People go to hell because they're sinners and are rightfully hmm. condemned for the wickedness of their life. Jesus is not the problem. Jesus is the answer or solution. So, if we're not careful, we can end up like getting into these theological traps where, well, how did they get a chance to believe in Jesus? Or what if they never heard about Jesus? Or, you know, what if they lived before Jesus? That That's not the problem. The problem is you're rightfully condemned in your sin. But Jesus is the hero coming to rescue from that. And to rescue from that, not only in real time, but people in the past and people in the future. And that's like Romans 3 we'll get into. Kelly nailed it. That's a whole nother show. That's a whole nother show. Yep. Yeah, I think I've heard it like in in that way where it's like <clears throat> believe in Jesus or else you're going to hell. It's like that almost that flips that around. It's like no, you're going to hell unless you believe in Jesus. So believe it's in like, Jesus if you want to live. Yeah. It's the Terminator. Come with me if you want to live. And I mean Terminator 2, not Terminator 1. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because that's redemption. It is, yeah, it is redemptive. Come with me if you want to live. So it only works to say, like like the way you put it, Andrew, if you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. 
It only works if you equate it to the same analogy of going, if you don't take your medicine, you're going to die. Yeah. You know, the medicine is not the problem. The medicine is not what's killing you. It's your affliction that's killing you. Yeah. Here is a solution offered freely to you. Please take it. And that's what Jesus does. Yeah. I'm very existential today. It was fun, wasn't it? I like it. it. Yeah. yeah. It's good times. I like it. All right. I think we're going to land the plane. Guys, thank you so much for listening and joining into the podcast today. Great having you just tuning in with us each week. Again, we go live every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Central Time. But catch us in past episodes on Spotify or whatever your your favorite podcast provider happens to be. Join us at fellowshipoffaith.org. If you're looking for a church home, maybe stream with us online or, or check out some of our past services. If we can help you find a local church in your area where you can ask your questions and get good, honest answers, let us help you in that. Text it in and, and wherever you live, we can help massage and, and, and navigate you through some of that. Um, again, my name is David Gadini here in the studio with Steve Wells and Andrew Metcalf. God bless you. And if we didn't get to your question today, we will get it Andrew. soon. 815 314 0363.